Well, J. Gresham Machen, one of the founding fathers of our denomination, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, once wrote that the student of the New Testament should primarily be a historian. He goes on saying that the center and core of all of the Bible is history. As Christians, we are students of historical events. Our entire theological pursuit is one of making sense of things that have happened at specific times and specific places. And we know this to be true about how we consider these important events with holidays and, and festivals. We celebrate things that have happened in history. If you were to make a list of important biblical events, what, what would be on your list? Christmas, uh, certainly. I think we could agree that the incarnation of our Lord is an important event, but also with it, there's an important theology that is important to our redemption. Good Friday, the crucifixion of Christ, that is one that we commemorate, even though it seems like bad news on the surface. We know it to be good news because of what it means for us. Easter, certainly, as we celebrate the resurrection of Christ, knowing that because he was raised, we also will be raised. We celebrate these events, and this goes back even to the Old Testament, as as God calls on Israel to yearly celebrate their own redemption, to celebrate Passover, looking back to the Exodus where God took his son by the hand and brought the nation out of Egypt. And of course, this practice continues. I mean, what family in the West, whether professing Christ or not, doesn't celebrate Christmas in one way or another? Even Easter this year, we celebrated a, a government-sanctioned event, a city-wide Easter egg hunt. Now, having kids pushing each other over to get candy might be an odd way to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord, but I don't think, I don't think anyone could deny that these events play a huge role in how we mark time as a culture, at least in the West. Well, today, on this day in the church calendar, we celebrate an event essential to our salvation, the ascension of Jesus Christ. But I would wager that none of you are concerned about the sermon going long this morning because you have an ascension roast in the oven. I doubt you spent the day cleaning yesterday because family is coming into town to celebrate the departure of our Lord. Why, why is that? Well, perhaps the festival of Ascension is not made liturgical or cultural waves as Christmas or Easter because we have a, a bit of a hard time understanding why it would be good that Jesus would leave in the first place. Christmas we get. Emmanuel, God with us. Easter, understand what the resurrection means for us. Good Friday, perhaps we understand the most that Christ's death secures for us redemption. But what about the ascension? A day in history where Jesus leaves the earth that he came to save. 
perhaps we could understand how this would be good news for him returning to heaven, returning to the glory that he once had before the incarnation. But, but he tells us that it is good news for us. In fact, he says that it is better that I leave. And whether we realize it or not, every week we confess this to be true. We say that the ascension is an extremely an essential part of what we believe as we confess the Apostles' Creed together, that he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father Almighty. But what is it that we are confessing? And what is it that we are celebrating today? Well, I want to consider those questions in our time together as we consider this familiar event, but perhaps some of the more unfamiliar theology behind it. This day that Jesus left the earth, body intact, to go to the Father. And I want to consider the theology by actually moving back a little bit further in time to consider the Old Testament context for what is going on at Jesus' ascension. Well, if you were following along in Jeremiah 33 as we read it this morning, we find that the prophet is assuring the nation of Israel that he will be that God will be faithful to his promises, specifically promises that he has made to King David. The Lord says through the prophet, if you can break my covenant with a day and my covenant with night so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David may be broken. The Lord here is stating a condition contrary to fact. That is, you can't break the covenant with day. You can't break the covenant with night. God is saying, just as surely as the sun rises and sets, so surely I will be faithful to this promise that I have made to David. What exactly is this promise? Well, if we go back even further to 2 Samuel, what we see is that God promises King David to build him an eternal kingdom. And that one of his own sons will sit on the throne of this kingdom, one that comes from David's own body, his seed, will sit on the throne. And as the Old Testament progresses, we find that there is a condition to this promise, namely, that this son of David must be a faithful and good son, one who rules his people with, with righteousness, one who would be obedient to God's law. And this is one of the reasons why in the Old Testament we find such a lengthy telling of the kings of Israel. It's a place that we can often get lost in our yearly Bible reading as we read king after king after king. Some good, most of them not so good. But the authors of the Bible, the Holy Spirit, would want us to ask, along with Israel, is this king the one? Is this the one that will fulfill these promises made to David? And of course, over and over again, we find that each king is not the one. In fact, you'll notice in Kings and Chronicles that the text itself makes a judgment about the kings. This was a good one because he did such and such and such. This was a bad one because he didn't do these things or, or led the nation into idolatry. But even of the best of them, not faithful enough to bring about this promise to David. We find king after king falling short 
But even so, in Jeremiah, God is promising that despite what it looks like on face value, including exile for the nation, God will be faithful as surely as the sun rises and sets. God will be faithful to his promise. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, the prophets writes, and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David my servant. And along with that, the Levitical priests who minister to me. Jeremiah says to the nation, I know what it looks like, but God has not forgotten you. God will be faithful even in these realities of exile, the faithful son of David is yet to come. And to his house, to his kingdom, there will be no end. Well, you'll notice something interesting along with this eternal kingship that happens in Jeremiah, that, that somehow this Davidic kingship is united with the Levitical priesthood. That this promise to David somehow includes the priests. And Jeremiah is not the only one who combines these offices. In fact, the psalm that we sang this morning does the same thing. Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Very kingly language, right? The Lord sends forth from Zion a mighty scepter. Again, this is speaking of this king of David. He says, rule in the midst of your enemies. The psalmist goes on, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Well, where did that come from? I thought we were talking about kings. Where does this whole priest thing come about? Well, if you're familiar with Melchizedek at all, and we could say a lot about him, but essentially the argument that the author to the Hebrews makes is, is Melchizedek is a, is a royal priest. In fact, his name can be translated king of righteousness. But the author to the Hebrews says he has no beginning and he has no end. That is, he is an eternal priest. And somehow, according to the Psalms, according to Jeremiah, this son of David, will he himself be a royal priest? He will be an eternal king and an eternal priest. The Old Testament kingly office, whose namesake and figurehead is David, culminates in this promised son, who will sit on Israel's throne and rule forever. But, but the Old Testament office of priest also culminates with this promised son who will continue the priestly role of, of mediation for God's people. The ruling office and the mediating office, two of the three primary offices of the Old Testament, come to their fulfillment in this promised son of David. The third office, prophet, is also fulfilled there, but we'll leave that for another day. Well, so this is all great, but what on earth or, or perhaps more accurately, what in heaven does it have to do with the ascension of Jesus? Let's consider that as we look at our text for this morning. So if we look to Acts 1, our, what, what's been going on in the Gospels is, is we're seeing more and more that Jesus is king, that the disciples have somehow realized this, and that at this moment there's some sort of royal feeling in the air. The disciples ask, Lord, will you at this time Restore the kingdom to Israel. 
The disciples do have an inkling that Jesus is, is king, but as they often do, at least before the coming of the Spirit, they're a little bit confused about the nature of his kingdom. But as we've seen, the Gospels go to great lengths to show that Jesus is the son of David. So they've got an idea of what's going on here. They understand that something kingly is going on. Well, it would seem from our text that Jesus takes the emphasis off of kingship altogether in his answer, doesn't it? Listen, the particulars that you are concerned with are actually none of your concern. But he doesn't take the focus off of kingship. He's just correcting their view. In fact, I would argue that he answers their question about establishing this kingdom. He says kingly power is coming. And with it, the advance of the kingdom of Israel. But it will not come by sword. It will come by witness. This is what Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What is it that they will witness to? Well, they will witness to the reality that Jesus is king. And that this kingly reality is somehow tied to his ascension. And how do we know this? Well, we can go forward just a chapter later, and we find Peter, by the power of the Holy Spirit, telling this massive congregation that, hey, by the way, David never ascended. And in fact, we can all look at his grave if we want to, but one has ascended. His grave is empty, and we are all witnesses to it, that he, flesh and blood, is now seated at the right hand of God the Father, and then Peter will go on to quote the psalm that we sang this morning. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Peter, as the Holy Spirit comes and, and, and testifies to the truth, sees that the ascension of Christ is his taking the throne of David. That that is what's going on as Christ is lifted up, that he sits on his Throne that Christ's ascension is his climbing a cloud form staircase, if you will, to his heavenly throne. And this is how Peter interprets it. It's also how Paul interprets it in Ephesians 1. It's how the author to the Hebrews interprets it in Hebrews chapter 1. That at Christ's ascension, he is being coronated as king. And this coronation fulfills God's promises to David. That's why there's all these Davidic psalms are being quoted in these sections around the ascension. That this is the one. And Luke, as he writes Acts, I would argue, wants us to see this event with this backdrop. He wants us to see Jeremiah 33. He wants us to think about Psalm 22 or what we sang this morning, Psalm 110. Perhaps this vivid image of Christ's ascension in Daniel 7, where perhaps it's, it's most clear that, behold, Daniel is, is, is explaining this vision that he sees. With the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. 
Think about what Daniel is seeing here. He's seeing one in the flesh, a son of man, also Jesus' favorite title for himself, on the clouds ascending to the Ancient of Days. And what happens next? Daniel goes on. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him and his dominion as an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Again, very Davidic language, right? He's going back to those very promises that God has made to David. And we find here that Jesus, the Son of Man, the one who in the flesh ascends upon the clouds and is placed at the right hand of the majesty on high, is given a kingdom, is given a people, has given all that God had promised to King David. The writings, the prophets, the Psalms, all testifying to the kingship of Jesus. As John Calvin explains, for although Christ, by rising again, began to fully display his glory and virtue, yet it was only by his ascension to heaven that his reign truly commenced. Just as 10,000 or 10 million Americans watched the recent coronation of King Charles III, these disciples watched as Jesus took his throne. And it is that theology that they will go on to testify, not only in the coming chapters of Acts, but throughout the New Testament, that Jesus is king. So what is any of this mean for us? Why would we keep the Ascension Festival? Why would this be something that we remember in our calendar? Well, firstly, the fact that Jesus is King is good news. (laughs) When we look at the world around us remembering that Jesus is indeed ruling and reigning in the midst of his enemies, just as Psalm 110 promised. It's not a surprise to Jesus that he is ruling and reigning, even though his enemies still exist for now, but that, that too will be taken care of. In a world full of trouble, we need not doubt that Jesus is in charge and that he is ruling just as he promised to rule with weapons that are not of this world. And when we look around this world and are tempted to think that Jesus is is not in charge, just remember that over and over and over again we see promises that this kingdom will not look like we expect. But he is faithful to grow his kingdom. And today at the ends of the earth in Temecula, California, as we gather here 2,000 years after this event, we can see as we look around that God is building his kingdom in strange ways. And yet here we are to hear witness of who Jesus is and to bow the knee to his kingship. He is in charge. We can trust him. But what is also so important for us is that if Jesus is king, it also means that we have a friend in very high places. One that is closer than a brother. 
Because Jesus is not only the Davidic king of the universe, he is also ascended as the prophet promised as our great high priest. If you'll recall from Jeremiah 33, the uniting of this kingly and priestly office. Well, this makes no sense unless Jeremiah is talking about Jesus. And he is. And the New Testament makes this very clear that Jesus is now our great high priest, making intercession for us, praying us into his kingdom. One who understands what it is to suffer. One who understands what it is to be tempted. One who has experienced sorrow. One who has been rejected. One who has faced death. One who knows our plight in every way. And yet is without sin. Rules the universe right now is at God's right hand, and not only ruling, but advocating for you from a position of power. And that is good news for us, as, as the author to Hebrews climactically declares. Now, the point and what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Hebrews we see here, collapses this kingly and priestly office. And because of this, the author continues, he is able to save you to the uttermost. Because you draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for you. If Jesus is merely sympathetic, he's no good to us. If he was merely in charge, that also would not be good news. But he is both sympathetic to our needs and ruling the universe. Because of that, he is mighty to save. Far mightier than the full number of your sins. He is mighty to save. And the whole Old Testament story with all of its kings culminates in this ascension where Jesus comes as he was promised to sit at the right hand of God, but also the whole Old Testament with its sacrifices and priests also fulfilled in Jesus, where he, as sacrifice and priest, now sits at God's right hand in the Holy of Holies. And he sits there for you, for your good, that you might have access to the throne of grace with boldness and with confidence. John Calvin says it like this, Thus, since he has gone up there and is in heaven for us, let us note that we need not fear to be in this world. Thus, we look to our head, who is already in heaven, and say, although I am weak, there is Jesus Christ who is powerful enough to make me stand upright. Although I am feeble, there is Jesus Christ who is my strength. Yes, the devil is called the prince of this world, but what of it? Jesus Christ holds him in check, for he is king of heaven and he is king of earth. 
in this world, Jesus promises you will have trouble. But take heart, King Jesus has overcome the world. And because Jesus has passed into the promised land, we can be assured that we too will enter into that rest. And in the meantime, he ever lives to grant whatever necessary to get us there. For he is king and his resources are endless. But he is also priest and his depths of love for us are unmeasurable. And that is who Jesus is for us because of the ascension. Even now ruling and reigning, praying for us that we might enter into his rest as well. Let's pray together.